This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by McDonald's Breakfast. We have breakfast in the pod room today, which is unusual. Joe Renzel, a lot going on in the breakfast front up in your neck of the woods. What happened at uh, George Mason University up near you that has changed breakfast habits? Yeah, this was a pretty intriguing article we found this week about um, robots, robot delivery. You know, we talk about a lot, a lot on the pod here. This is robot delivery pilot program out at George Mason. And the whole point was that it changed the eating habits of the general student population, all the patriots out there at George Mason University. And it basically, because they had this easy access to uh, convenient delivery via robots, little uh, you know, cooler-sized robots on wheels driving around campus, they all started eating breakfast again. And, and for me, breakfast is a big deal. I love a good breakfast, and if I was in college, I sure as heck would be ordering that every morning, and if it could just roll up right to my door and just kind of even feed me a little bit, that'd be great. I'd love that. Was this prototype, was that based off of the, the motorized cooler that you have on wheels that you ride around at sports events? I'm not sure if uh, they allow you to ride those around at sports events. But in the parking lot. I do lot. feel like uh, I was an initiator here uh, with, with the ease and convenience of getting around on wheels and having a robot deliver your food. It's really important there, frankly. important part was... You know, the article goes into they've researched these results for they've been studying the results of this for test for a couple of months now, and what they're finding is that students have such a hectic morning. You know, getting up, you know, getting to, <laughs> it was just the end of right there, getting up, yeah, getting up. You know, stumbling through their hangover routines, but they don't have time for breakfast. And what this delivery thing has has made time for breakfast, and now those robots are delivering more at breakfast time than they are at dinner time, which is a total 180 pivot. And so it has built a breakfast business essentially out at George Mason University, which I think are interesting learnings for our, especially our quick service folks, Joe. Yeah, and I think the university's uh, facilities on campus are now making more money than they were before. And I think that's the bottom line. They've changed the behavior. They've offered a convenience. And, and now they're uh, reaping the benefits in terms of new and expanded revenue. And by the way, I think this would have totally helped Franklin out uh, at the University of North Carolina there. He might have actually finished in, in the four-year spread instead of that five-year spread if he was getting up earlier. Nothing wrong with the victory lap, my friend. But speaking of... Uh breakfast nothing wrong with having it all day is there guys yeah mcdonald's has got it all day all day long get your sausage egg and biscuit all day i am leaning into a sausage mcmuffin my friends that is the staple the mcdonald's do not derivate it is the deal and the hash brown also spectacular the old the old full hash brown it's old school no little no little hash brown pellets at full joe renzel we've got mcdonald's here in the pod room what do you what do you what do you have up there yeah i went out this morning because uh you know the mcdonald's near me is open nice and early and they got breakfast all day i got my sausage mcmuffin also but i went a little over the top and i got myself an egg mcmuffin as kind of like a dessert feature if you will and you can't you can't Skip the hash brown. You gotta go. Double stacking the McMuffins. Impressive. I think I think McDonald's also is finally clearly, clearly the challenge is over and Rinzel <laughs> Oh yeah, no, that's been done for a while now. We're back into regular Rinzel mode. After about twenty years of struggle, I think McDonald's has finally gotten the coffee thing figured out too. They've got they've got decent coffee it's these not days. Bad. Yeah. So all right, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We and we will make America great again. 
From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, McDonald's has single-handedly turned the minimum wage issue on its head with its announcement that it will no longer oppose minimum wage increases. We'll have a long discussion getting to the bottom of why they did it, how they did it, and what it means going forward. And the gig economy employers are on the move. Uber and Lyft are literally driving the future of work conversation, and traditional employers are getting left behind. We'll take a look at that and what it may mean for the industry. And we'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my aligned partners, Franklin Coley, Carson Chandler, and back in the D.C. bubble, Mr. Joe Renzel. So this week was probably one of the more memorable weeks that I've probably ever had in my 25 years in the restaurant industry, Franklin. That's a lot of weeks. It's a lot of weeks. That's a lot of weeks. The biggest company in the industry made a rather significant announcement on the biggest issue in the industry and used a platform at one of the biggest meetings in the industry to do it in a very public way. This week, McDonald's announced that they will no longer uh, lobby against minimum wage increases at the federal level, state, city level, wherever it may be. And uh, to the extent that they are engaged in the issue, we'll be talking about parity between tipped and non-tipped types of enterprises. That's kind of the announcement. That, that's it. So, so can, we're I, gonna, can, I, can I inject one piece, though, to, to yeah, just yeah. amp up the dramatic here? I, mean, just, I, I want to manage the expectations, listener. We're going to spend a lot of time on this announcement, how we got here, what it really means, soup to nuts. And we have spent every moment in the hallway this week talking about this as well. <laughs> um, but just one more little little nugget here to amp up kind of the, the excitement and, and you know, dim the lights here. I mean, this letter that became the announcement was leaked Politico the day before the National Restaurants Public Affairs Conference. Politico had this as the top item, which is everything anyone that's marching up to the hill is going to read and all the hill staffers read. And it led, And if you just Google McDonald's and minimum wage, or don't even put McDonald's, just Google minimum wage this week, cyberspace has been absorbed and sucked through the vacuum that is the the black hole that, that McDonald's created. So it is just blotted out the sun. So, Continue, so, Joseph. So, so let's, just, let's talk about the decision itself. Okay, just the decision itself. In your estimation, Franklin, in your opinion, because we don't know what's going on inside the, the bowels of McDonald's and so forth, but we can speculate. We've all long corporate experiences and been in those kind of situations in those rooms in those meetings. Franklin, what do you think drove this decision? I expect at least part of the decision-making process, and I'd say a big part of it was driven by from the ops side of the equation. And in particular, I think... A lot of these restaurant companies, but particularly QSR companies, are kind of in the glide path to automated restaurants, at least large portions of the of the restaurant automation. Significant technology in coming into the restaurant over the next 5, 10 years. Right. Reducing that, particularly if you look at like a 10-year horizon, right? And so that labor footprint and probably the footprint of the store itself is is shrinking, Right. And the labor cost is shrinking. And so when you're looking at that reality and staring down that reality and the guys in the lab, you know, are telling you, hey, we, we've got this figured out now. By the way, they acquired an artificial intelligence firm, one of their biggest acquisitions in like two decades this week. Um, that's going to help with, with menus. So when the guys in the lab are telling you, hey, we've got this figured out, we cracked the code. Your we competitors know and across the world, Yum and China is almost running completely automated restaurants. I mean, we know yeah. where this whole 
puck is going. And, right? and, and, you're, and you're looking at how much money you're spending on lobbying, public affairs, et cetera, the reputational toll. You're saying, we're not going to, these labor mandates aren't even going to matter that much to our P&L 10 years from now. Why are we going to wear all this? You can see how, from a business perspective, you could come to a decision to not lobby minimum wage or not worry about minimum wage focus on other issues. And in fact, we've been saying in this podcast for a long time that companies should be smart and get ahead of these labor issues or put them aside to the extent they can and focus on other issues, talk about them in different ways. So, you know, in some ways, the decision to not engage in this issue makes a lot of sense. I have a no lot, problem with it. A lot of companies do that. A lot of retailers, a lot of restaurant companies. So that that is how I think. So the decision itself, we have no problem with. And that's about where it ends. That the, is, the timing of it, the manner of it, yeah, the way it was done, yeah, I think we have a lot of problems with. Yeah. Okay? Let's talk the top of the batting order on timing. Timing. Timing is everything, right? Right. You know, we can talk about the timing this week, and, and we'll get into, you know, why now, why this week, why, you know, why. But what was it, eight years ago, Franklin, I journeyed out to Oak Brook at their invitation. And, you know, we had a long conversation about what was happening in the labor space, what was happening in the public policy space around activism and the alt-labor movement and groups like Rock and funding out of nonprofits and and how the labor community was was working together and what, what the implications on public policy would be in the public narrative and how the storm clouds were gathering that McDonald's was going to find themselves in the middle of this tempest very quickly. And, you know, we, we needed to explore ways to get ahead of this way, get ahead of this conversation, get ahead of the, the subsequent legislative and regulatory proposals that come as a result of that conversation. And I was politely told that I was nuts, that uh, it was Walmart's issue, and to go run along and play. So eight years ago, this entire map was laid out for them in their offices at their request, and they chose to ignore it. For me... If I were the head of public affairs for McDonald's, I would have made this announcement five years ago. Five years ago. Easy. Maybe 10 years ago. Five years ago, I would have made this. So the timing of it in the long term is, I mean, not a day late and a dollar short, five years late, a decade late and a dollar short. So there's timing number one. Timing number two so, is this week. Why this week? I mean, this week, this announcement and decision was calculated to use the NRA as a foil and you know, look good relative to the rest of the industry and the NRA. Essentially, they were taking the NRA and tossing them under the bus in order to get earn extra headlines. And that is very apparent in the, you know, we mentioned in kind of the intro here, this thing was the day before the National Restaurant Association's Public Affairs Conference leaked to Politico. It, it became the story of the week owned minimum wage when the Restaurant Association was marching up to the Hill to lobby a number of issues, minimum wage included. Now, let me tell you what the story of the week and minimum wage would have been had McDonald's chose to make this announcement not this week, but at another time. The story of the week and minimum wage would have been that the Democrat caucus is now has a fissure in it on the minimum wage issue. A bunch of red state Democrats have said, we do not want a $15 minimum wage to be the official Democratic Party platform because it puts us in an impossible position 
headed into 2020. That would have been the story of the week. Putting the NRA was planning to go up on the hill and sow the seeds of that discontent and, and, and that would highlight been, that. That would have been the wind at the back of restaurateurs marching up to the hill to have a conversation around uh, minimum wage, which could have been, we don't mind if you do a federal minimum wage, but you know we want a gradual, you know we want to protect the tip wage, we want a gradual phase. It could have been McDonald's messaging effectively, at least in the phase in, but instead, that was lost, totally lost in all in all the conversation around minimum wage. And that's a huge issue that the Democrat caucus is not in the same page in the federal minimum wage. Instead, wall-to-wall coverage on the McDonald's decision. And so instead of them rolling up to the hill with wind at their back to have a conversation with red state Democrats on this issue and explain the impact of small businesses and franchisees, instead... We had them rolling up to the hill with a huge headwind in their face that made it challenging to have that conversation. And listen, it, companies routinely, it's, it's not uncommon for companies to divert from what their industry peers are doing or kind of go in a different so, direction than, than their trade associations are doing. So there, there are a lot of ways you can do that. Yeah, so the, the other thing, so we, we talked about timing in terms of approach, and that's one piece of it. But they had a couple different decisions they could have made here. They could have just decided to quit lobbying the issue, which is probably 80% of companies don't lobby the minimum wage issue. I, you know, I'm, I'm just guessing. When we when we stopped lobbying at Walmart, we did not have a press event about it. We just kind of just walked away. Most companies do not lobby minimum wage. Or if they do, they lobby little pieces and parts. And I would include a lot of restaurant companies. They don't necessarily lobby against minimum wage. They ask for a longer phase-in or they ask for, you know— a training wage or, or other things. So option two was option two was to make the announcement and to do it in a way that highlighted opportunity, to do it in a way that was not timed with the public affairs conference, to do it you could do it in a number of different manners where you made the announcement you are no gonna longer gonna lobby minimum wage, but you had a different conversation at a different time about best first jobs and entry-level jobs. Hey, we're not going to lobby a minimum wage, but just recognize that if the minimum wage goes to $18 an hour, you're going to eliminate some of these best first jobs. So you guys are the policymakers. You make the decision on what you think the minimum wage should be, but just understand that we're, we provide a lot of first jobs to a lot of young people across the country, and you are going to take away some of those jobs. And option three? And option three is to toss your trade association and rest of the industry partners right <laughs> out of the bus for the glory of a couple of days of headlines. And what was the choice? Door number three was the option that appealed. Yeah. So I, I don't know where you want to take this conversation. I don't know where our table of contents is going next, but I do want to talk about the value of the trade association and, and what that does for companies and why hurting the credibility of the trade association is, is probably not the best long-term play. You want to hit pause in that and go somewhere else? Yeah, so, so you know, my, my, my take on this is, look, again, I've talked about the timing. You know, McDonald's was in denial for many, many years about this fight for 15 movement coming and, and, and what was happening, even though they were handed it to them on a silver platter, they were, they were in denial about it. So they were late to the game. And their approach over the last five to 10 years in responding to that effort has been feckless at best, right? They have not legislatively, you know, they've never been a strong government affairs 
program. They've always had a strong industry relations program, and it's kind of a strong public affairs program, but they've never been a lobbying powerhouse. So they have not been able to win hearts and minds of people on the minimum wage issue for the duration of this issue. So for them to step out of lobbying the issue, no one's going to notice. I mean, their home state of Illinois, you know, there wasn't even a conversation about opportunity. They, they lost so gloriously in their home state that they didn't even try. My point being, it's not, it's not going to affect the issue having McDonald's not lobby. Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't like they were a big powerhouse anyway. Yeah, and I, I think that goes back to the decision-making process, too, when we were kind of going through it earlier, is... Well, I get you're beaten about the head and face constantly. When you're getting crushed, yeah. crushed. When in your home state, you know, you... Minimum wage is going up to $15 an hour with uh, tip credit, which they said in the letter, they basically, they said they oppose. So, yeah, like, why wear that? So so part two that, that bothers me is uh, throwing the NRA under the bus. And listen, anybody who's read my column for the last 15 years or listened to this pod, you know, I, I, I've got a PhD in throwing the NRA under a bus. I, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, opposed to doing that when, when necessary. But... The idea that that, that McDonald what McDonald's has does really really well is is steering trade associations toward their agenda. They are masters at that at the state level as well at the national level. As a matter of fact, the NRA gets unbelievable grief from the other change because they all think that the NRA spends too much time doing McDonald's bidding. And this wage issue, McDonald's has been the driving force of the NRA's wage strategy for the better part of a decade. And for the and McDonald's to, to turn around after all these years of a gun to the head of the NRA, making them walk this plank, go, oh, we're not with those guys anymore. They're, they're, they're at a bad strategy. It's like the hypocrisy of that to me is just galling. It is absolutely, I, I just, it, that was the piece that jumped out at me. It's like, we have shed so much blood on this issue as an industry for so long. And McDonald's was the leading entity pushing us down this direction for them to go, hey, we're not doing this anymore. This is, this is you know. It was crazy to me, and to do that in a public way. Well, and I think I think a lot of McDonald's cohorts in the industry would would in the halls of the public affairs conference this week were probably going, "Those are the freaking guys that brought us the fight for 15 campaign, <laughs> yes. landed it on our doorstep, and now they're tossing us under the bus on yeah. on the minimum wage issue." You know what? 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 They're, they're the guys that, that that didn't see the fight for 15 coming. Waited too long to acknowledge it and brought it all to us, and now they're the ones pulling the rug out from us. It, the audacity of that, I, I just I find jaw dropping. So that's that's the last piece that I wanted to hit on in terms of this week and, and how it was handled and, and the approach. If you were a fight for fifth, actually we don't even have to speculate because a restaurant opportunity center, you know, another labor group, almost every year plans to bracket the public affairs conference and do a big press event and protest and try to hook into and kind of spoil the National Restaurant Association's public affairs conference. That's essentially what McDonald's did, is they basically <laughs> adopted that strategy to hook into and use the National Public National Restaurant Association's public affairs conference to undercut their agenda, their lobbying agenda, and to get their own brand in the, in the press and, and draw attention to it. So, it literally is almost like taking our opponent's playbook and, and using it against the uh, the trade association. Now, I don't know where you want to take this conversation next, but I, I do want to hit on why McDonald's probably is going to need that same trade association into the future on a variety of different issues. Well, as much as, as the timing of the announcement and the, the language used in the process and the, what, what it said bothers me, what, what it didn't say bothers me exponentially more. I mean... You know, and I have been critical in, in many very public forums 
that I, th- I think over the course of the last 25 years, McDonald's has not performed like an industry leader. They have underperformed in the government relations space. There's no question. Massive company, thousands and thousands of restaurants all over the world. And you know, they've had three or four people running around trade association meetings and state capitals calling themselves government. I mean, it's just a, just a ridiculous approach to government affairs for, for, us, for a company that size and scope and that importance of industry. And they don't play the, industry, the intellectual industry leader role that Walmart plays in retail or 7-Eleven plays in convenience stores or Walgreens plays in the drugstore space or Marriott plays in the hotel. Like When they talk, everybody listens. They know they're the smartest folks in the room. McDonald's has never played that role in this, in, in this industry. And here's this opportunity where they're walking away from them, which I think is right, right. I got no issue with that. What a great opportunity to say, hey, the wage conversation is the wrong conversation to be having. We're, we're the largest employer in this industry. We're the big, we're going to lead this industry and our company to a different conversation. We're going to talk about job skills and workforce development. And our, 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 our company mantra, they, McDonald's is sitting on a gold mine with this America's best first job. I mean, it's a gold mine. They've done they, a great they, job that would be it. That would be the, the Magna Carta of my public affairs program would be America's best first job. And everything I did or didn't do was look through the lens of that mantra. And, 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 you, and you can go, and, and McDonald's is going to go to every state capital, every city hall, every think tank, every nonprofit, Congress, whoever, and we're going to work on skills, workforce development, and, and we are going to be the national foster parent of that first job. And we are going to make sure every kid's got an opportunity to get in. That would have, that's what industry leaders do. And that was what this announcement was right. It was right there. If they had gone there and completely used it to change the conversation, I'd been like, where is the ticker tape parade? This is what we've been waiting for for 20 years. And they had it right there. And they decided to do a petty slap fight with the NRA instead of being a thoughtful, powerful industry leader. And by the way, and what, I mean, a, what a damn disappointment it is. So that's that's a good that's a good Q5 and rant right there. So one of the one of the um, I'm going to give McDonald's a, a, a compliment here, and I know we've been complimenting them throughout, and and saying that this week was badly handled, right? But. McDonald's has a great story to tell. They, One of the best stories to tell in the, the industry and in the American economy. Their their best first job story is real. It's legit. And what they're, a great opportunity. Their fran- their franchisees' stories are legit and totally credible and the story of the American dream. There's no doubt. When There's I, no doubt. When I worked on Capitol Hill 100 years ago, do you know how many members of Congress had diplomas on their wall from Hamburger University? I mean, yeah. did, and, and how many members of Congress worked at McDonald's at one point? They, I mean, they, had, they have a great story to tell. So, so to your point, that instead of having kind of that conversation about America's best for a job and, you know, we're not going to lobby minimum wage any, anymore. It doesn't make sense to us. But, you know, we want to note that we provide entry-level jobs and we put people in the path to the American middle class and – you know, if you do these things steep in the short term, then it threatens some of those some of those jobs, and then have that conversation about the value of those entry level jobs and da, 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 da. But yeah, to your point, they they went the bumper sticker route, and you know, Easterbrook has said we're going to be a progressive burger company, and they took the the bumper sticker progressive route that we're against minimum wage. We don't want to impede quote unquote the minimum wage conversation rather than the, I would argue it's equally as progressive, but it's a different conversation. And that is that upskilling, investing in youth, 
investing in starter jobs. I would argue that's equally as progressive, but it's a different, more thoughtful conversation than kind of the bumper sticker politics and minimum wage. And we, McDonald's, as the as the facilitator and fosterer of America's best first job, we are going to take all of our industry partners and hopefully we can lead the national restaurant or whoever it may be into that space and our other peer companies into that space. And we are, we are going to drive. That's where we're going to spend our time in that conversation. That should have been done as part of this. That should have been the focus of this process. And to your point, this, this it little, was absent from this conversation. It was noticeably absent, and instead we got this bumper sticker. To your point, it's a good analogy. I'm just so disgusted because these windows of opportunity to do something big and bold like that come very, very seldom. It comes around, especially in our industry. And here it was, man, right on on their lap one more time, right in their palm of their hands one more time, and the clown punted it. The clown tripped over his big clown feet. And now we have a, you know a couple of couple of days of some headlines, and we'll go back to everybody goes back to their desk. You know, I just I'm just so damn disappointed. I can't believe it. Uh, I've literally been tossing and turning the last couple of nights about the missed anybody that's passionate about workforce development, job training, and upskilling. What a missed opportunity this was. Well, two things that come out of this conversation. Number one, what is McDonald's relationship moving forward with the National Restaurant Association, the Trade Association? I suspect things will normalize and it will be fine. But, I mean, it warrants noting that the National Restaurant Association does not just exist to lobby minimum wage. They do a lot of different things, right? Education, advocacy, you know, certification courses, right? So all this kind of stuff. And so tossing the NRA under the bus on this one issue hurts their kind of credibility on a lot of different things. You know, whether it's sodium labeling or... You know, food handler cards in in some state or, you know, there are a lot of issues where the Restaurant Association is an important kind of leader and partner. Yeah, but I agree with all that. But let me me counter back. If America's best first job is going to be, if if I were running the show, be the centerpiece of what what your entire agenda is about and everything's got to go through that lens, then that gives you the, the freedom to jettison these other, what I would consider minor operational issues that we get stuck in. Or straws and course. styrofoam and course. certifications. And put your focus working with the yeah. uh, with the Restaurant Association Education Foundation to work in apprenticeship programs. Or there, there's absolutely 100%. 100%. I, I get that. But the, but the trade association still has value. There's and, no question. Yeah. And, and the, bigger com- the bigger the company is, the more complicated they are. They have a different relationship with that trade association. When you're a small company with limited infrastructure and resources, that trade association is everything for you. That's your that's your one anchor in the world, right? But a big company like McDonald's, the NRA is a tool, or should be a tool, tool in their toolbox. and a big toolbox, no doubt. right? You know, and so them either having a straight relationship with the NRA or having no relationship, it, it shouldn't affect their program one way or the other. They're too big for that. But if they're going to places where they should be, the NRA should be a kind of minor player. They should be with the Ed Foundation, but they should be out partnering with nonprofits and, and think tanks and all kinds of different types of organizations, not necessarily lobbying a wage agenda. So the other thing that I'll be, number two, that I'll be watching in the, in the wake of all this is the corporate parents' relationship with their franchisees, which in the past 12 months has been as rocky as it ever has been. And they traditionally have been, historically, have been well-known for having great relations with their franchisees, while other brands have really struggled with it. So, you know, the franchisees formed their own association within the past year. You know, there's been a lot of changes in the law of, of cost pushed down to the franchisees that they've been 
voicing uh, in a way they never had before, kind of a little discontent. I suspect if you're a franchisee that owns a couple units in middle America where, you know, the cost of living is much lower than New York City or Chicago or a thousand other major metros, then you may kind of have an issue with um, the corporate parent never vowing to never lobby again on any federal minimum wage, regardless of what that rate may be. That that may not sit right with you, particularly combined with some some other issues that have bubbled up recently. So, I uh, that's one other thing, kind of as this little this week's little incident goes in the rearview mirror that you know be interesting to watch moving forward. So a few weeks back on the podcast, we talked about what was happening in California with regard to reclassification of workers, misclassification, joint employer, independent contractor, and vis-a-vis third-party delivery drivers, and you know Uber and Lyft are kind of in that mix as well. Activity in Texas on this space. The New York Times ran an interesting article this week about is gig work a job? You know, and and and, and there's a lot going on in that space. Franklin, update us on where, where we are. And there's been reporting on this. This is a story that's been bubbling up for a while, but now the New York Times is jumping in and has done kind of the most comprehensive piece of date. I would encourage everyone to go read it. The bottom line is on it's in Tuesday's New York Times. Is gig work a job? Uber, Uber and others are maneuvering to shape the answer. And, uh, I mean, the headline is, is pretty leading. You know, this this is a space in the policy sphere that is kind of a gray area, and a lot of the Ubers of the world have taken advantage of that by building their business models in this gray area of the policy space. Now, um, as one would suspect, they are trying to uh, clear that up and make it much more black and white and solidify their business models. Places like California that you mentioned, that's tough for them. California is pushing back. They want they want to extend liability across companies and they want to ensure that these workers are employees of Uber or Postmates or, you know, whoever is doing the delivery. So they get all those protections. The New York Times article estimates that it's 30 to 40% additional cost to have an employee versus an independent contractor in this space. So they want to extend all those protections to these workers. On the flip side, and this is really what the article focuses on, the Ubers of the world are, and I guess really being led by Uber, are going into a lot of kind of your traditional red states and cleaning this up in the law. So they are establishing in law that network companies, essentially platform companies that contract with drivers, that their workers are deemed under the law, independent contractors. And so, you know, they've pushed forward. This is about Texas. They're doing it through the regulatory administrative law process in Texas. They've been pushing legislation in other states, and they've been successful in a number of states, Kentucky, Iowa, Tennessee, Indiana, Utah, Florida. And they're still working on it in places like Colorado, Georgia, North Carolina. So this is happening right now. And the guardrails of what the delivery economy, for lack of a better term, looks like. Are being gelled now, are gelling as we speak. The rules are being written right now. And so I'm not sure it's in restaurants' best interest for Uber to kind of lock down and write the rules for their business model in the delivery space. You know, some restaurants are still looking at delivery. Do they do it internal? You know, probably a little confusion in that marketplace benefits restaurants. But right now, we're I suspect we're not participating in a meaningful way in a lot of these, these policy conversations. But Uber is writing the rules for themselves right now. 
Joe Renzel? Yeah, I think, you know, the article was really interesting to me because it kind of took a peek behind the scenes, if you will, of kind of the lobbying effort on behalf of these, of the Ubers and the, and the kind of platforms out there. Obviously, the New York Times didn't take a very positive spin on that. Uh, there was a lot of critique, understandably so, about trying to work the regulatory angle and kind of being behind the scenes and not necessarily doing, you know, the kind of upfront public central piece. The key here to me you do have the hardening of the of the laws in the states that Franklin mentioned, but they still got a ways to go. Uh, they've done kind of the quote unquote low hanging fruit of the, the kind of red states where the political environment uh, is better for management, you know, versus labor. But they've also kind of unveiled their game plan and they haven't quite gotten the job done 100 percent. And so you're going to have opposition come uh, in a harder way. At the same time, a lot of these companies are seeking their you know, IPOs and trying to, you know, get investors and do all that, you know, this is a huge liability for how they can define their employers and their entire business model. Um, And so there's going to be more to come on this, but you guys are right. Restaurant industry folks that kind of use these services need to be paying attention to this, need to be understanding whether or not, like which side of this should they be on from a profitability perspective and a competition perspective. I don't think anybody has the answer. Yeah. And the article Goes into a lot of this, but, you know, the labor community has their own thoughts, right? And they're going to their playgrounds like California to to push their agenda. But um, they say in the article, we were caught off guard in Texas. And these first states, you know, I think Uber and others kind of jumped quickly out of the gates, probably caught a lot of people flat-footed. To your point, Mr. Renzel, the labor community is, they're going to get smart and they're going to start pushing back. And, you know, this is going to be a conversation that, that plays out in a lot of states in the coming years. And it's going to be one that's interesting to follow. It has a lot of uh, potential impacts to the market and to these companies. And it's, it's you, you hit the nail on the head. It's the future of work and the rules and regs around the future of work are gelling now. This is, again, going back to the previous segment. This is what industry leaders in the restaurant industry should be driving their associations into this space and retail, too, and retail as well but restaurant as well and instead we're having these junior high school level slap fights about minimum wage the past <laughs> of work and there was a missed opportunity that announcement yesterday to say we're going to drive our trade association into this conversation again it all comes back to the same things you can't let it go renzo slap fight is a term i have not heard in a while that's that's a good one i'm gonna try to work uh, that in my vocabulary today that's from back in the 70s i think the slap fighting heyday of uh, Kefauver's youth. <laughs> Kefauver was the youngest Kefauver. He was held down and there was yeah. no slap fighting. He was just slapped. I was just slapped. Yeah. yeah. It's time for the legislative scorecard where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory proposals. And as always, we start with wages, but this week we'll cross it up a little bit and we'll start with Franklin Coley. Franklin, a couple big things out of, out of D.C. this week. Yeah, we mentioned it earlier, um, but there's a lot of discussion that spilled out in the open within the Democratic caucus on the $15 an hour uh, minimum wage this week. Uh, There's a lot of red state Democrats or red district Democrats that are pushing back that they don't want it as part of the official party platform. They want a more moderate uh, wage increase, and they are looking forward to 2020 and their little little afraid to be on the record on that issue. We had another related item in the bubble coming out of the Labor Department. They have put out proposed rules related to what constitutes the rate requirement for overtime pay. So this is kind of hot off the presses, and I'm sure you'll get more information in the coming days. But what it essentially says is 
employers may include or exclude um, certain kinds of perks or benefits, wellness programs, leave, et cetera, in that overtime rate. That's that's a big development. Employers will need to get their arms around it. And Franklin, I wish Aloha Joe were here because we got some activity in Hawaii. Aloha Joe. Yes, we have a House passed bill that was amended in the Senate. It was going to increase the $15 an hour minimum wage rate there at a much faster level. So what are we looking at now? $12 an hour in 2020 and up to 15 by 2023. So, you know, there's a little, little hitch there that if you provide health insurance, you get a lower rate. Anyway, legislative session there is when the tail end of it started to wind down, so they got to hammer out a compromise between the two chambers. If and this is kind of where we we found ourselves the last couple of years of Hawaii. They, they it looks like they're going to do it. it. Looks like they're going to do it, and they just kind of run out the clock at the end and it doesn't happen. I think there's an expectation this year that something's going to get over the finish line, but we will see. And my home state of Maryland, my Maryland, finally finished their process. They overrode the governor's veto. Governor Hogan, uh, yeah, he got. Uh, he got slammed. So this thing's going into effect. Fifteen dollars an hour by twenty twenty-five. Maryland becomes the sixth state to pass a fifteen dollar an hour wage. So I, I read as a part of that that while only the sixth state to do it, twenty-five percent of the country lives in a state where it will be eventually fifteen dollars an hour. Twenty-five percent of the population are in the six states that have gone so far. There's some biggies out there. Yeah, New York, Illinois, California. So. Just an interesting little factoid. Going up to Michigan. So this issue is still being litigated, but the minimum wage increase that was approved by voters, it is scheduled to take effect April 1. Voters originally passed an increase of $12 an hour by 2024, and that was amended in a lame duck session. That was outgoing repub leaders, and, and then the new administration came in. Anyway, this thing is still going to be tied up in the courts, but... The thing's going into effect. So, so for operators, just pretend like the litigation's not going on. It's going into effect. And comply. Comply. And we'll and sort it out. Always err on the side of complying. That's a general That's a good idea. And then out in, uh, out in Nevada. So a little bit like the Hawaii situation, a bill to raise the minimum wage introduced just prior to the legislative deadline in the assembly. It's a $12 an hour bill. And the legislature passed similar legislation last cycle. Current governor, Democrats expect to be supportive. So we've just got to reconcile kind of the, the House and the Senate versions, and we expect something's going to probably get over the finish line there. All right. Well, pivoting to wage theft, two states this week had some activity New Jersey, Minnesota. What happened in New Jersey? A lot going on in this issue. So New Jersey has put a wage theft bill over the finish line in the past, and Governor Christie has vetoed it, Republican Governor Christie. Now we have new Democrat Governor Murphy in office. He's expected to sign this bill into law once the legislature puts it on his desk. And essentially, this is going to enhance penalties for workers that are victims of wage theft in the state and give some more latitude to the Labor Department to audit employers. Expect that uh, some employers are going to get caught up in this and and folks are going to be headhunting for headlines. And in Minnesota... The attorney general's at it. Speaking of headhunting for headlines, and we have talked about Attorney General Keith Ellison before, a former member of Congress, former candidate for Democrat National Committee chairman, who uh, announced this week, and this was kind of in the context of a bipartisan wage theft bill, was working its way through the legislature. He announced that he is beefing up 
a labor division, so essentially a lab, mini labor department, within the attorney general office to focus on wage theft. And part of the announcement— Well, broader than wage theft, what he calls economic crimes. I mean, it's— I like that term. I mean, uh, wow. Yeah. And so in his announcement, he actually said something to the effect of, we couldn't do anything about the Republican tax cuts and taking money away from— you know, the lower strata of society, the poor, and, and giving now it to the rich. Find a way to give it back. But we can do it on this front. And I, so that should uh, tell you kind of how political this is This is going to be. So calls for concern in Minnesota. Keep an eye out. Keith Ellison is definitely going to be headhunting. So uh, pivoting to paid leave, the busy week in Washington, the, the drumbeat continues to get louder, uh, especially on the Republican side of the aisle. Yeah, Republicans rolled out their version of the paid leave program this week, and they're adding uh, quite a few kind of high-level sponsors with, with national identities. Mitt Romney is now on board, and he's pushing it. He's a big proponent in addition to Marco Rubio and others. And who's a, who's a new elected in the House? I think he's a former Marine or Navy SEALs. Crenshaw, I think. Anyway, he, he has got a big national profile, and he is behind it and pushing it as well. So you have a lot of kind of national Republican figures that are now behind this and in getting involved and engaged. Of course, Democrats have their own proposal. The bottom line, this conversation is, is kind of getting real right now. What does that tell you politically? That tells you it's more or less a done deal. It's, you know, it, it, that... 80% of voters or 75% of voters think it's a good idea. I think it also says the numbers still show that Republicans are soft with women. I think that's that's probably true as well. And so this is an issue that's arrived. Obviously, there's differences in approach here, and that, that'll be sorted out. So some activity in Minnesota and in Oregon. Both on, uh, on paid leave. So in Minnesota, a Senate Budget Committee re- released a cost estimate on the paid family leave program that has been under discussion there in the state capitol. And it's got a big receipt attached to it. Only about $900 million a year. Yeah, Is that so, big, a billion dollars a year for one state? Yeah, so Republicans have been trying to put the brakes on, on this thing, and this kind of gave them their, their big talking point and reasoning to slow down the conversation there. This will probably be enough to derail uh, parental leave there this, this session, but yet again, we'll have to see how things kind of sort themselves out. And in Oregon, the same deal. It looks like their proposal may be kind of a bridge too far as well. Yeah, and I mean, part of the issue there is... Well, I think a lot of the issue there is essentially it would function as a payroll tax instead of, uh, you know, a business tax, right? And that requires a three-fifths majority. Oregon's one of these states that has a rule around taxes, a higher threshold, and I don't think they're going to be able to get over the finish line. But yet again, we'll see. There's there's time for, for politics to work out here, but it looks like it's going to be too heavy a lift this year in Oregon. So uh, switching to scheduling, the city of Chicago, as we know, has their runoff mayoral election on Tuesday. Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot, what a great names for mayoral candidates. It appears that Lori Lightfoot is going to win that, barring some miracle. But uh, regardless, and the, the sponsor of the scheduling bill in, in, in Chicago is in a tough relation, in a runoff as well. And regardless of whether he wins or loses, he's committed to seeing this thing through. And so there's activity next week, Franklin? I think it's, we're looking at the fourth. That's, that's a third. Next week right? and yeah. Yeah, and a week after that potentially as well. Yeah, so right in the middle of the election. So is, is election day on the second or is it on the ninth? 
Next Tuesday, whatever next Tuesday. Yeah, second. So we have election day on the second, and then two days later we could be hearing the scheduling bill in Chicago. So what a mess, employers. Stay <laughs> what a your, mess. Stay on your toes up there in uh, in Chicago. Yeah, and I, I, I think the general consensus is the cake on this is baked. It's going to be up for first reading and then probably up for a vote very quick. And there's going to be a limited discussion and opportunity to amend this bill. And I don't think I don't think the industry has had much impact on this process in the city of Chicago. Yeah, now is now is the time for the hail mary closing arguments. If you yeah. want to charge into council persons' offices and, and try to reason with them, so. And we had a, had a bill introduction in Maine, and everything in Maine this session seems like it's been greased on the labor side. So one to watch. Yeah, it's one to keep an eye out for. I'm not sure this thing is gonna is gonna go or not, but like you said, it's definitely a friendly environment. So we have a restrictive scheduling mandate that's that's being introduced there. It's pretty similar to the ones around the country. You know, two weeks advance notice. So uh, we'll be keeping an eye out for that. And another labor bill pivoting back to Washington, Franklin. Um, on pay equity, what we're going to see a lot of, I think, in the next year or so is the House Dems pass a bill knowing it won't get passed in the Senate and they want the campaign issue. Yep, this is their first major labor priority bill of this Congress. It is That's a, passed all the way out of the House, correct? Correct. And that is the Paycheck Fairness Act, which would build upon uh, the Equal Pay Act, which I believe was passed during the Obama years. And so this would do what, what we've seen in a lot of the states. It, it would increase penalties and then make broader the uh, – it would go from equal work to substantially similar work, essentially, and make it easier to kind of bring cases. It also has a component part in there um, that bans kind of salary history, allows for salary history discussions, bans employers from questioning. So anyway, it's got all of the kind of equal pay stuff baked into it. It's going absolutely nowhere. Uh, yeah, as Mr. McConnell picked which trash can he's going to throw this one in? Is not it? yet, but okay. it will be one. And uh, But like you said, it's going to be a talking point in the 2020 campaign trail. And the last issue, the issue I've worked on for many, many years at my alma mater, Walmart, this fair share legislation in Oregon on health care. I think it's something that everybody – no, no matter how this bill finally works its way out of the Oregon process, it's a re-emerging issue, we've talked about it before on the pod, of employers having to kick in some type of stipend when their employees go and get signed on to state Medicaid plans or CHIP plans or other types of benefits. And so we saw that in the early 2000s in a lot of blue states, and we saw it about 10 years ago, and here it comes again in Oregon. So Yeah, there's two two bills there, and they both do the same thing, and they address all these different programs, whether it's um, SNAP benefits or it's uh, you know health care or it's Medicaid or all these programs. If your employees are own those programs, they're going to tally that up. And the employer is going to have to pay that back into the into the state coffers and, and cover that. And and the argument here is that taxpayers are subsidizing a low wage workforce. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's and these are very popular. These are very popular pieces of legislation, and we're going to start seeing them popping up. And the and the industry would be wise to get their kind of act together on this before we have these things in eight or ten states. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a tough conversation to have. There's no indication that these are going to fly through the process at this point. But um, look, this is a talking point. This is a, this is a conversation labor community wants to have. So it easily could, could get traction quickly. And I would say there's one last item that's worth touching on. The Labor Department's Association Health Plan rule, which you know uh, has been talked about a lot, and it was one of the things the administration has put forward as a solve for 
um, cutting health care costs. And we see the, the administration going back to talk about health care this last week. And anyway, a judge has blocked that, saying that essentially it's an in run around the ACA and that it's um, unlawful. And so I, I can't imagine that won't be appealed and that process will continue to play out. But unfortunately, that puts that entire approach in jeopardy. Not ideal. I can't imagine a week being more exciting than this one legislatively, but you never know what's going to happen next week. So for those of you that listened to the podcast last week, there was some concern whether our colleague Carson Chandler was going to make it back to Orlando. And he did survive Las Vegas. Franklin, what kind of shape did Carson survive Las Vegas in? Survive is, is a generous term, my friend. He did not really... He barely survived, barely survived. He limped back into this office, licking his wounds, then turned around and walked right back out of this office and went and crawled into bed and had, had Mammy bring in some chicken soup for, for about 24 to 48 hours. Um, I mean, he had to go to bed. He had to yeah. spend Tuesday in bed recuperating. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. it's, Vegas is a young man's game. It is not, you know, you get to a certain, it just takes its toll. And he was out there, I think, way too long. Wednesday, th- three nights, kind of four days, three nights in Vegas, which is... When you're going, you know, sports book, first week of the NCAA tournament, that's that's an that's a Iditarod of of debauchery. Yeah. You know, and so Carson is home safe. He had to go to bed for a couple days. He's got a little cold. He's got a little Vegas flu. Uh, but he's our big Wookiee is back up and running now as we speak. But Joe, the NCAA tournament continues. My team's out. Your team's out. But Mr. Coley's team is looking good. Mr. Not only is Mr. Coley's team looking good. But Mr. Coley's bracket is looking good. If you go to the Politico leaderboard, I'm in about 20th place. I am uh, top out of 18 of the people. Out of 5,500 uh, brackets submitted, I am uh, top of the pile. You can check it online. F. Coley, Florida. Uh, I'm, I'm standing strong. I have one team wrong. I have one team wrong in my bracket right now. In the current round. Well, since all the favorites have made it to the finals, it's it's, it's, it's not, a chalky it's not, tournament. I called it before we started. It's a chalky tournament. It's I don't like know it's like you. Dizzy Gillespie, you know, blowing his own horn. I'm not afraid to. If I don't, no one else is going to. So you got to. Joe Renzel, how's do. your bracket? I, I think this is all fake news. I don't believe a word of what uh, Frank and Coley is saying. I will say though that I'm liking the kind of alternate year situation that we got going on here. So like Villanova, North Carolina, Villanova again. I don't mind North Carolina winning. Because that means we're up next year, buddy. Don't worry. Well, it means Duke didn't, so that's good. Yeah, I don't know that – man, I don't even want to think about it. It makes my stomach hurt just thinking about potentially making it to the finals. Just it's, – it's too much. It's too much. you got to own that stuff, Franklin. you got to be a fan, man. you got to step into it. you got to own it. Man, I, uh, I am, I'm definitely there, but uh, the ulcer in my stomach is not. Um, well, we'll get yeah. an update next week on your ulcer, Franklin. Franklin.